As all of us grow older, uh, memories become more precious to us. Memories of what we did when we were young, the friends we had, the family that has gone on behind us. Uh, my brother is going to be sending me a picture, and it's a huge picture. It's like two feet by a foot and a half wide. It's a big picture, and it's of my great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a very big man. They called him Big Hens. Big Hens was probably six, 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 seven. Uh, everyone respected him. Everyone looked up to him, literally looked up to him. And this picture has been in the family since like 1850, 1860. So it's that old. It's that old of a picture. But um, he sent it to me because I like to look at the pictures of my family, where we've come from, who we were, how we got here, because those memories are precious. Now, Paul's in prison. He doesn't know how long. He doesn't know if he'll get out. He's praying to God that he will get out and be able to continue all of the work that he's been doing. But he's thinking back on the people whose lives he has touched. Now, can you think back today and see the faces of people who have both touched your life and whose lives you have touched? People who are generous, people who are kind, people who are helpful. Always look back and remember the people that touched their lives with examples of that kind of living. That's what we're talking about today. And today he is writing to these dear friends and he's going to tell them two things. I'll give them to you right up front. He's going to say, I remember you as you were when I met you. And then he's going to tell them, but I see you as you will someday be. Remembering who you were and looking forward to who you will become. That's part of what a missionary journey is about. It's about looking at people where they are and seeing where they will one day become. As we go through this, you may want to think about some people in your family, uh, distant cousins, relatives, people that you knew in school, and remember people who made this kind of impression on your life. We are in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. I remember you as you were. This is what Paul tells them. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Now, an overseer was the word that Paul used for a pastor, a pastor leader. The word deacon, of course, is the same word we have today, basically a pastoral assistant. Someone who steps in when the pastor is not available. Someone who can answer basic questions about who God is, what God is doing, where God is going. When the pastor has to be out of the city or visiting someone somewhere, the deacons can step in and do the work of ministry, which is the building up of the church. So when he writes, he's writing to the whole church and he really wants to focus in on these leaders, these pastors and these deacons. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in every prayer. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, I am sure of this, that he who has started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Wow, what a wonderful opening to this letter. They know where Paul is. They know he's in prison. Prison is not a cheerful place. I have visited many church members who were in the joint, who were in there for their own misdeeds. And it's not a joyful place. They're usually not very happy to see you because they're very embarrassed about where they are. Paul is not ashamed at all of why he's in prison. He is not ashamed at all that he's been placed there because of his work. 
for the gospel. But he says this. He thanks God at every remembrance for their partnership in the gospel. Now, what does he mean by their partnership in the gospel? These people had been with him all through this. When he needed money, he sent to them and they sent him what they could. When he needed something done, he would say, pray for me that this will happen. Pray for me that that will happen. And that was what was going on. Oftentimes, he makes reference to the Philippians as being those people, that example of what a believing group should be. And that's why this is called the happiest book in the New Testament, because it reflects that very joyful spirit he has with them. Their partnership in the gospel was important. Consider this, Ephesians 4.12. He calls on them to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. The one thing he wants them to know is you are kingdom builders. As Christians, whether you are a lay person, a musician, a pastor, a deacon, you are kingdom builders. How do we build the kingdom of God? We equip each other. We strengthen each other. Each person who studies the word of God to show himself approved, show herself approved, is someone who encourages others to do the same thing. There's a young man that visited our church. He looks at us, and I think he is encouraged by what he sees in us. And it's difficult to look at someone who does not have Christ, who does not understand what it means to be safe in the arms of Jesus. But when they see people who are, when they see Christians who are living out the gospel, when they see people who have committed themselves to the work of God, they see a difference in us. So even if they don't quite understand what we're doing, they understand that there's something different about us and that they can learn from that. So our work in the ministry is not just reaching out to the unbeliever, it's also building up believers. Let's face it, believers get down. Believers get depressed. When a tree lands in your friend's house and, and then four or five storms have hit you in a row and you've had no break, no rest from all the devastation, it is very hard to have a joyful spirit, amen? It's very hard to be happy when your home keeps getting hammered again and again and again by these horrendous storms. But the only way they can be joyful is to take their eyes off of what is happening in this world and put it on what God is doing in them. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, who started that good work, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. I want you to understand something. There are three steps in a Christian's life. Three steps. The first, most important, is sanctification. Well, salvation. Salvation is that moment when we accept Christ as our Lord and Savior. So when you are saved, you are saved. End of story. You will not lose that salvation. Here's where most people go wrong. The second part of that story is the story of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of being made holy. Anybody ever work with gold or silver here? You ever smelt gold or silver? When you smelt silver, you have to scrape off all the dross, all the garbage that flows to the top that's not pure silver. It will literally flow to the top, and the person working the metal will scrape it off and throw it away. It's useless. It has no value. But you have to go through the process of refining again and again. And every time you go through the process, a little more junk bubbles to the top. The, the maker scrapes it off. And at the end, you have either pure gold or pure silver. That's a process of our life. 
We're never exactly what we're going to be in heaven. We are what we are because that's where God has us at that moment. Think about your life. What were you like five years ago? What were you like 10 years ago? Was there a difference in your life then from now? I would hope so because that's that sanctification process. That's that process of being made more and more into the image of Christ. And when you go through that process, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes God has to remove some things from your life that you really like, that you really enjoy. But when God removes it and it's no longer a weight or a burden, then suddenly there's more room in your life for that walk with the Lord. So you have salvation, then you go through the process of sanctification, then at the very end you have glorification. Glorification is what we will be in heaven, not until we get to heaven, but when we get to heaven, we will find that we have a body like the body Christ had after the resurrection, a body that is perfect, that is pure, has no sickness, no illness, no weakness. There will be no disease. When my sister-in-law steps into the next life, if she has given her life to Christ, she will find that all of those problems that she's been having all of these years, 12, 13 years of sickness will be gone. And she will have that perfect body that God wants her to have. When you step into heaven, then you get the perfect glorified body. Not until then. Always while you are in this flesh and blood body, you will have those, that process of sanctification. And scraping away that removing of the dross that contaminates who you are as a person. Whether that be anger, whether it be jealousy, whether it be rage, whether it be fury, whether it be a, a disgruntled spirit. Whatever it is that messes with your life, that is slowly being scraped away as we more and more submit ourselves to Jesus Christ. So he says that God is not going to stop working on you until the day you step before the throne of grace and Jesus Christ is there and receives you into heaven. That's the day when the process is done. Until then, it just keeps going. Consider this, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What's the whole thing there? Boil all that down. People like to fight about words. I don't like to fight about words. If God gives us a statement, let's look at the statement. Let's not worry about fishing around. What does this word mean? What does this word mean? Basically, if you have given yourself to Jesus Christ, submitted to him as Lord and Savior, that process is assured. The word predestined just means who you are going to be one day is you are going to be like Christ. You are going to have that nature. You are going to have that spirit. You can never be God. Our Lord Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. That is a mystery you will never understand. I don't understand it. I simply accept it as truth. There's a lot of things in this universe I don't understand. Quantum mechanics is one of them. I ran into a guy who loves quantum mechanics. He thinks the whole world is about quantum mechanics. I don't even know what quantum mechanics is, but I know I don't know anything about it. But he thinks the whole sun rises and sets on this, on this science. I don't understand it. But if you tell me it's real, I can accept that. That's no problem. So when I look at this, I go, you know what? 
God says he has a purpose for my life, and that purpose is to be made into the image of Christ. If I go through the sanctification process, I let him put into my life those blessings he puts in, take out those things that impede my progress. Whatever he takes out, he takes out to give us freedom to move forward. And that's the truth of it. You know, my brother had a motorcycle accident. He took a swan dive over the front of a Harley Davidson, which proceeded to go over him. He shattered his, his ankle, and he has this huge metal rod in there and a little plate that holds his ankle together. And uh, for a long time, that metal rod, that plate was very useful to him. It held him together while he healed. Now, however, that thing is trying to crawl up out of his body. And the doctor said, hey, we have to take this thing out. And Big Brother says, wait a second, isn't this thing holding my ankle together? And they said, no, no, your ankle's healed. This thing now that was a help is now a hindrance. Let's remove it and we'll give you the therapy you need to grow stronger and go on. So he's going to have to have that done. But you see, that's what it is. life is like that. Sometimes we have these things in our life that we think are so important. But God can't remove anything from our life that stands between him and us. Remember, the purpose for which we were all created is to have fellowship with God Almighty. That is my purpose. Now, God puts into your life those other things that are a blessing, but they never take the place of your walk with God. Every married man can tell you his wife is the second most important person in creation right behind Jesus Christ. And as long as you keep that, you will never go wrong. You know why? Because when you know Jesus Christ is Lord, that's your primary relationship, then he points to your wife and says, this is the greatest blessing you will ever have outside of me. I've given her to you. Take care of her as a gift from me. When you know that God gave you that woman, you are going to take care of her. You are going to prize her. You are going to make her a priority in your life because she came to you from God. Amen? That's important. She's not just an egg. She's not just a pain. She's not just someone who takes your money and spends it. She's a blessing and a gift from God. We have to know that. It's very important. A lot of guys get that wrong. So I'm going on record. You got to straighten it out, people. All right, here we go. Consider this also. John 6, 20 through 29. Then they said to him, what must we do to work the works of God? How can we be pleasing to God? How can we do the things God wants us to do? What does God want us to do? That's the biggest question. What does God want from me? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The number one thing that is required of all men and women is that we believe in Jesus Christ. That is what we were created for, to put our faith in Christ. Without that faith, we have nothing to cling to. We have no claim on eternal life because eternal life is in Jesus Christ. That's the whole point. Eternal life is in Christ. We cling to him, we believe in him, that we have done the most important work. Now, whatever God calls you to do after that, you do because of that faith in Jesus Christ. And it's so important. Here it is. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. We're still working on that introduction. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Remember, so Paul is saying this right about eh, 60, and then 70, the temple will be destroyed. In 70 AD, General Titus, later to be Emperor Titus, will enter Jerusalem. He will storm 
the temple. He will destroy it. He will burn it down. He will annihilate it. And he will spread the Jews throughout the kingdom of Israel. Israel will cease to exist and they will become just Roman citizens. That's what Titus will do in 70. So the writer of Hebrews is saying right here, later your earthly kingdom of Israel is going to be shaken. It's going to be gone. If we keep going this way, America is going to go the way of Israel. We're going to disappear as a nation. And we're just going to become a conglomeration of people who happen to live in the same place. Just like the Roman Empire. But the thing is this. In Christ, you have, a, you have a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be dispersed, that cannot be torn apart. And thus, let us, of, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I love that line. Our God is a consuming fire. There's two edges to that. Those who oppose him will be destroyed. They will be consumed in the fire. But those who submit to God are like the gold and the silver. They are refined. The dross is scraped away. They are refined. The dross is scraped away until what's left is pure. Purified by God's holiness and righteousness and you become the person he meant for you to be. That's the process. That's how I always see loss. Loss is nothing for me but that scraping away of those things that I really don't need in order to follow God or those things that might get in the way. You know, we were talking about Eddie Van Halen passing away and how people were, were saying, you know, he was this, this guitar god, and that always bothers me. But the thing is, he did some amazing things, yes, but he was just a man. He was born, he lived, he did amazing things in the field of music, but he is gone now. And that, that's kind of a sad thing. You close that chapter, just like Hendrix, just like you know, Jim Morrison and the Doors, it's, all of these people who come and they are like bright comets in the musical world and then they disappear, but the world goes on. Without Jesus Christ, the world doesn't go on. The world stops. It ceases to have meaning if there is no sacrifice from heaven. And that's why he said, let us be grateful that our kingdom, our place in Jesus Christ cannot be shaken, cannot be removed, cannot be tossed about. So he said, I remember you as you were. And he's given them this wonderful thing of, the God who began his work in you will not stop working on you until the day you stand in glory. And the thing is, a lot of Christians like to get on the road to heaven and then they find a rest stop and they stop growing. They stop reading. They stop developing. They stop that process. So as a result, they go through their life half developed, only half developed. Imagine, imagine if some of the greatest musicians in history had said, you know what, uh, this guitar is too hard, I'm not going to play it. We don't need Eric Clapton. No, he could have, he could have gone into accounting and been an accountant. But then think what would, have, what would have happened to the world of music if he hadn't stuck it out. You know, you read stories about guitarists, and as a bass player, I don't have this problem. But uh, guitarists, when they're learning, they bleed a lot because those little strings will cut your fingers. Same thing for banjo players, that's why they use picks instead of uh, fingers. They cut your fingers, but they go through the pain, they go through the process, because at the other end, they have an ability that they want. As Christians, we go through the process of submitting to God again and again and again, because down the road, and Paul's gonna say it right here, I remember you as you were, but I see you as you will one day be. Look at this, Philippians 1, 7. 
It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. This is his first imprisonment in Rome, mid-60s. So he's in jail. He's under the Roman scrutiny. He will be released. He will go out. He will continue the work and he will go back for his final time in prison. And when he goes back the final time, that will be it for him. He will meet the end of all Roman citizens who have crossed the law. He will be laid publicly out on a stump and his head will be taken off. A Roman citizen could not, could not be crucified. That was for pagans, heathens, and subjected peoples. A Roman citizen could either fall on their own sword and commit suicide, most notably the military and the, uh, the wealthy, or your head will be taken off by a headman's axe or a sword. That's how a Roman citizen died. That was Paul's future, and he knew it. He knew if he kept poking, if he kept poking the emperor, he was going to get the, the short end of a sword. But he didn't stop because his own life wasn't worth it. So he sees, in my imprisonment, in the defense and establishment of the gospel, you are there with me. He goes on, for God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you and with the affection of Christ Jesus. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and in every kind of discernment so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. By the word, the word blameless is not the word sinless. The word blameless means that no, no judgment has been leveled against you. Even though you sin, Christ is always our advocate to stand up and go, yes, this man has done wrong, but my blood atones for his sin. You see, we are not righteous because we are good people. <laughs> we are not good people. In our hearts, in our heads, in the things that we think and say, we have offended Almighty God. We have, every one of us. But the thing is this, Christ's blood makes us blameless. When anybody would bring a charge against the church, he would be dismissed. When the high priest Joshua in the Old Testament was, was shown as standing before God, the image that he had was of a man in filthy, dirty clothing, a man who looked poverty-stricken, a man who looked covered with filth. But then you hear a voice in the vision, and it says, Remove his rags, cleanse his body, and dress him as high priest. Even though in himself, in his flesh, he was no more than any other person. He was no more righteous, no more pure than anybody else. God spoke and sanctified him. And then you see Joshua standing as high priest, pure white clothing. His skin is cleansed. He has the turban on his head. And on the turban is the name of God, Yahweh, written on his head because he belongs to the Almighty. That's how we are. In our flesh, we are filthy, dirty, stinky, and covered with muck. But when Jesus Christ went to that cross, he essentially said, take that man, cleanse him, dress him in the robes of righteousness so that all can see he is blameless because of me. Isn't that amazing? Our sins are not held against us because Christ died to remove them. Think about it. Is there anything that we could do to remove the guilt of our sin? No, there's nothing. Friedrich Nietzsche was an atheist. 
He's the one that coined the phrase, God is dead, in the 1900s. And he said, oh, now that we have killed God, who will remove the guilt from us? Now that we have slaughtered the God of eternity, who will wipe away our sins? And then Nietzsche, in his insanity, says this, only blood can remove blood. Nietzsche, even though he would not accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, those last 13 years he was stark raving mad. He realized, he realized that only the blood of God could remove the sins that we have committed against God. He saw the truth, he just would not accept it. And there are many people like that. They can see the truth, but they won't accept it. Because when you accept it, you are 10,000% indebted to the one who removes your sin. He says this, so you can, you can approve the things that are superior and you can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What an amazing statement for Paul to make to these people. He says, I, I have complete hope in you, complete faith, because I have faith in the God of eternity that he will do this. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. The Christian life is about these things. Knowledge of who God is, what God is doing, as revealed in Scripture, and every kind of discernment. I want you to consider this. Colossians 4, 3 through 5. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He was back in jail again. That I may make it clear which, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Notice what he says. Make the most use of time and walk in wisdom toward outsiders. I don't understand Churches that scream and yell at sinners. What else would you have a sinner do but sin? I don't understand churches that burn the Quran or that burn the Old Testament. I don't understand churches that, that sit there and, and hurl insults at people going into abortion clinics. I don't understand that. Do I approve of what they're doing? No. It is murder. Do I approve of people who call themselves by the name of Christ? screaming and yelling insults at women who are too frightened to know what they're doing. No. That is not what Paul says. He says, walk in wisdom and be kind, be generous, be open to these people. You can't approve of their actions, but don't scream and yell at them. Don't drive them away from Christ. When Mahatma Gandhi was asked about Christianity, he says, I love your Christ. I just don't like your Christians because he couldn't see anything of Christ in the people who were around him. The story is told that Mahatma Gandhi went to a church in the south, and he started to walk up the stairs to this big, beautiful church. And as he got to the top, several men in suits said, I'm sorry, we don't like your kind here. They thought he was a black man. They sent Mahatma Gandhi, one who would seek after Christ, they sent him away by saying, we don't like your kind here. The insanity of that confounds me. And I don't understand how we can drive people away when they come to seek Christ. Doesn't matter who you were, what you've done, where you came from. When you're seeking Christ, you are always welcoming God's house. Amen.
That's not how it is. Consider Colossians 1, 9 and 10. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Again and again, Paul goes back to this, increase in knowledge. How do we increase in knowledge? How did you get to know your wife? You took her out. You dated her, you talked to her, you asked her questions like, do you like country or Western? Do you know what bluegrass is? Because if they don't know, just walk away. I'm just saying, you ask questions, right? You, you, you find out who this person is. That's how we increase the knowledge of who God is. We ask of the Bible the questions that it poses to us. And then we look at the answers and we learn about who God is. We learn about who Jesus is, not was, but is. Because he is still active and moving in the lives of his people. We ask, what is the Holy Spirit doing? We ask, how can I make Christ known to the world? Those are the things we ask, and that's how we, that's how we grow in wisdom and in knowledge. And it says we should walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I would say that the people outside the abortion clinics are not walking worthy of the Lord. The people who are turning away someone from church because you don't like the way they look or you don't like the way they smell or you don't like the kind of things they're known for, that's not walking worthy of the Lord. It doesn't matter what a person is out there. Once they come in here, God's got a chance to get a hold of them and show them what they could be. Yeah, we know what you were, but this is who you could be if you gave yourself to Jesus Christ. The very last one is Hebrews 5, 14. Solid food is for the mature, but those who have their powers of dis by those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Trained by constant practice. You know, I asked my daddy how he got so good with a pistol. He said, oh, about 10,000 rounds. See, he was in the army. He was in Germany after the Second World War. My daddy did a lot of shooting. I had to shoot. And that's how he got so good. My dad could lay a gun out there, bam, hit anything he wanted to. But he wasn't born that good. He didn't get that good by looking at the gun or reading about it. He went out and used it and practiced every single day. That's how he got good. How do you get good at anything? How do you get good at hunting? Day after day after day of practice. That's how you get good at anything, amen? That's how you become proficient. If you don't handle the word of God except for one hour on Sunday, how can you become proficient with it? How can you know it? You know, a long time ago, I gave Derek a couple study Bibles. Study Bibles are the best way to become acquainted with the word of God. You read something and go, hmm, what does that mean? Well, look in the study notes. That's how you figure it out. And you do that again and again and a day after week, after month, after year, after decade. And after a while, you kind of figure stuff out. You go, oh, I remember that. I remember that. Paul says the same thing over and over again a lot of times. Why? Because he always repeats the most important things. Grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. That's what was said of Jesus. He grew in stature naturally by growing taller. But in favor with God and man, he worked on that. He worked on that. And that's what we have to do, too. 
As we study the Word of God, as we get to know the Word of God, as we become familiar with the Word of God, we, we, we do our own little Bible studies. We, we open our study Bible and we, we read a passage and go, huh, I don't understand what that means. Well, let me look it up. Boom, there it is in the, in the, in the notes. That's how we get good. People, a lot of things are happening in the world. A lot of people in Louisiana are starting to wonder if God gave them up for Lent or something because they're like, why are we getting hammered? You know, the bad thing is there's a lot of people in Texas are not very grateful for the fact that that didn't come and hit them. They're like, whew, glad it was them. No, you should not be glad it was them. Them poor people have been beat down over there. The question becomes, how can we help? What can we do for them? How can we prayerfully support them in the days that are ahead? You see, if you're not used to thinking about things from God's perspective on a day-to-day -day basis, children will make, you, will make you turn to Jesus in a hurry. You know why? Because if you don't turn to Jesus, something's going to happen. Them children can push you over the edge and off the abyss, man, I'm telling you. Kids can do that to you, but that's why being a parent just drives you closer to Jesus because, man, you got to have you got to have help from somewhere, amen? That's how you become a good parent. You are there every day. You make that a priority. You make that time sacred. When my daughter is home and I am home, boom, she gets my attention. Whether that means when she was a little kid playing silly games, I never sang to Barbies. I can say that. Thank you, Lord. She was not a Barbie person, so I didn't have to do that. Did not have to do dress up. Did not have to do tea parties. Well, at least not too many tea parties. But whatever my daughter wanted to do, I was there. You know why? That's my priority. My daughter, my wife, that's my priority. My church is that second priority. You know, if, if, I, if I need to call someone to check up on them, see what they're doing, see how they are, that's a priority to me. I don't have many brain cells left after having sit, survived the 60s, 70s, 80s, and most of the 90s. But um, what I have left, I want to put to use so that I can be useful for the Lord while I'm still here. Amen? Amen. Philippians is going to be a positive book. And he does that by saying, I remember such good things about you. And I see such amazing things for your future. Now, maybe the Lord looks at your past and goes, hmm. But he looks at your future in Jesus Christ and goes, wow, that person's going to be amazing. All we have to do is live up to the things that we've already attained. And if you don't know that scripture, you need to look that one up. We've already got heaven. We've already won the war. We've already got a mansion waiting for us. All we have to do is live like we deserve it, which we don't, but in Christ we do. Amen? Let's pray.